Welcome to Project Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth. Greetings to everyone around the world and welcome to a new edition of Veritas Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, reminding you to subscribe at VeritasRadio.com if you wish to listen to this full interview and all of our material. And if you want to get in touch with me or want to be a guest on this radio program, perhaps on a future Vox Populi because you have an important story to tell and want a safe platform to share your truth, click on the contact button of our website. Now let's get to it. A few weeks ago, I received a message from a childhood friend who lives in Florida. He was at a business named Area 51 Computers. Like me, my friend Manuel is very inquisitive, so while doing business there, he started chatting with the owner. He wanted to know if there was a particular reason why he named the business Area 51 Computers. And there was a reason. After listening to some of the story, my friend asked him if he was familiar with Mel Fabregas and Veritas Radio. And to my surprise, he was familiar. So my friend gave him my contact details and we got in touch. We spoke for a few hours. He sent me some photographs, which are on our website for you to take a look at. And I decided that his story was definitely worthy of a Vox Populi installment. His name is Patrick Shank. And he says his father was an engineer at Area 51 and many other locations. Patrick joins us directly from St. Cloud, Florida. Hello, Pat, and welcome to Veritas Vox Populi. How are you? Good, sir. How are you doing, Mel? Excellent, and I'm so glad to finally connect with you again. We spoke a few weeks ago. I wanted to know the chronology of events, and I thought that this is a story that we need to share. And you are here today to do just that. So, again, my friend, childhood friend Manuel, was at your store, and he asked you about that name. Why don't you take us from there? How, how did that ensue? And then we'll, we'll dive into the story. Oh, it was a, a normal day for me in my shop. We have a, a small computer repair shop in St. Cloud, Florida, and uh, we stay pretty busy. Um, we do have a lot of people that come into our store. We have uh, that just want to see uh, what it is that we got going on there because of the name. Um, we do have a lot of uh, peculiar things hanging on the wall. I'll say it's kind of a treasure trove of uh, Area 51 and and uh, aliens and all kinds of uh, UFOs and pictures and, and things and stuff that people bring me. I have people from all over the country that uh, bring me different things. Uh, for example, I got a uh, yardstick from... Roswell, New Mexico, uh, you know, we get people to bring us photographs and pictures and, and just everything that you can imagine under the sun. So we put that in our store. So that day, that particular day, man, well, your friend come in and, and, uh, I don't know. It was, it was just kind of funny that we just stroke up a conversation about it. And, uh, he wanted to find out more about what I, you know, what the background was of the store and why we named it, what we named it. And, uh, you know, I uh, was very interested in the, the looks of the store. So I began to tell him a brief story about how and why we ended up naming the store Area 51 Computers. And uh, he was uh, pretty excited about that. He, he had a lot of knowledge and, and, and knew a whole bunch of stuff uh, about the topic. And, and I found that really interesting. And then he spoke of you, Mel, and... Uh, he goes, well, my friend Mel, you know, he uh, he has a, a radio show, Veritas Radio. Well, I, of course, I've heard of that, and I do listen, and uh, and uh, it just went from there. I guess, I guess that was the 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 uh, connection, so to speak. That uh, I felt very comfortable talking with him. Um, this uh, topic for me, I guess, or or this uh, story for me um, is uh, something I've had my whole life to me it's no big deal but to the average person it's a a fascinating look into uh, a black world and of things that we uh regular joes don't get to see of course and then i was on i was a guest on coast to coast am a few weeks ago and i was with a jimmy church during open lines and there you (laughs) were right yeah i was um (laughs) i was fishing 
believe it or not. I was in the Sebastian Inlet on the end, the very end. Um, I have a lot of radio equipment, and uh, I always take it with me, and I love to listen to the show. And I have to go on on the very end of the point out on the jetty to get cell phone signal or anything. And that night I lucked out and I uh, waited in line and I just wanted to say hello and uh, say hello to Jimmy. And uh, I love the show that, you know, that was a great show that night. I really enjoyed it. And I fish overnight. So it, it just worked out real good for, for me. It was a, uh, it was a great time for sure. Great mood fishing at night, listening to all these topics. Yeah. That's great. So that? absolutely. So, okay. Your father. Let's begin with the story. Where where does he come from? Where was he born? And then we're going to connect to when you were born, but let's start with him. Well, my father was born in uh, Pennsylvania, in Indiana, Pennsylvania. His in name was? Ray Shank. And uh, he, he uh, at a very early age, was into radio and... Uh, much like myself, uh, and, um, got pretty proficient with it. And, uh, he, uh, decided that he was going to be an electrical design engineer. And of course he had to go to school for that. And, uh, he didn't go to any Ivy league college or anything. It was all technical schools pretty much. Um, his father was a, a lineman for the telephone company. So technology for him was, was pretty easy. He was it just was was raised around it, and uh, he never uh, he never wanted to follow the usual path of the rest of the family. He was he he knew there was a big bright world out there, and then he was gonna he was gonna go. And uh, he had a couple of buddies of his that felt the same way. And uh, not too long after, um, during his school, he uh, received a. A letter from a friend of his and uh my dad had started a family of course and uh, my sister she was very young and and uh, her mother and they were living in pennsylvania she was a school teacher and they had the typical 50s you know early 50s uh suburban lifestyle post-war generation uh, things were pretty good and uh his buddy says hey uh we're going to be building a radio station in libya um the company's name was, I believe, Highcon Page was the name of the contractor. And they offered my father to go to Libya to live on the embassy grounds and work on this radio project uh, for the British. So my father, my sister, and her mother loaded up the, the wagon and uh, flew over to Benghazi and uh he started work working on this radio uh it was slash commercial radio station some military aspects to it I believe um and uh I believe he spent uh almost a year there and um I don't know the exact story you know like I said I wasn't I wasn't present but something along the way had happened to where there was some involvement with um, the purposes of the of the radio station. It, it ended up being a, a listening post. Um, it was disguised by the, the British were going to go in there. They were going to build this radio station for the, the Libyans. And and come to find out, it ended up being used for a military application. And uh, I believe that was about the time of the Gaddafi regime and and. Um, my father was given 24 hours to leave the country. So, uh, but he completed his main bulk of his work at that project. And, and, uh, it really freaked, I guess it freaked him out. You know, it freaked my sister out and her mother. My sister was very young. And, uh, you know, when you've got, uh, armed people around you, you tend to get a little squirrely. So he, uh, decided he was just going to choose a different path. And uh, he got back and completed his last little bit of schooling that he needed and went into uh, what What year was design. this approximately? I would say that, that that was in the early 50s. So we're so we're early 50s, probably 53, 54, somewhere in there. This um, 
incident with uh, the government of Libya was, I guess, uh, an immediate action. They wanted the, they wanted the Americans out immediately. And um, so once he got back, um, he decided that he was going to um, pursue his electrical design career. And I believe his first posting, um, he started doing some work for Bell Labs and um, got into basically missile missile design is where he ended up his bulk of his career was in missile design. So he, um, he ended up his first post would be at the white sands missile range. And he was working, I guess on the Nike project or one of those early missile, um, programs. And, um, he enjoyed that work. He was, he was happy. They were, you know, family was good. Everything was, life was wonderful. And, um, he, um, he loved being out in the desert, you know, being, being out there in the, uh, wide open territory. And, uh, let me interject for a second. When he was mm -hmm. kicked out of uh, Libya, mm -hmm. did that open doors with the department of defense? Yeah, that was the funny thing. He, um, well, and, I, and I'll get to this, but he, he was a very patriotic guy. He, he loved his country. He wanted to, he, you know, watched a lot of Flash Gordon and all of these, you know, uh, TV shows, you know, and went to these, uh, matinee theaters when he was a kid. And he just loved space. He loved rockets. He, uh, loved Von Braun's, uh, you know, uh, later on in the, in the, uh, Apollo missions and just was, I think he's just destined, uh, for the missile business. I think that's just what he was, you know, bred for. I, I, I don't know why that, why he chose that particular, I think it, everything just kind of fell into place for him. He, once he got the security clearances that, the, you know, that was, that was it. It was, it was, you know, he could, he could do anything. That's the hardest part of the whole deal is, is your word. Are you going to run your mouth? You know, you, you have to, your word's got to mean something. And, and the Department of Defense and, and those contractors are exactly that way. They have to know they can trust you with a secret. And I think once he got the, once he got his first clearance, I know he was very proud of that. Um, I don't know exactly what the first set of clearances were later on. I think I have a pretty good idea what they were and I'll have to look through his stuff and see exactly what those, uh, security levels were. But yeah, he, he, to answer your question. Yeah. It, it, it really, the sky was the limit for him at that point. And I know the Nike project was, was, um, he enjoyed working on that project and, um, he did, he excelled, you know, for a guy that, for a guy that never had any Ivy League college or or a, or a you know uh, a four year degree or anything like that, it was amazing that he was able to um, you know get these get these jobs and be able to to produce like he did. Did he display any abilities uh, in school where teacher may have recognized that? Because a lot of times, you know, I remember some of our former guests some of the names are my mind is failing me but some of them from from a very you know small they're very young they're they're identified and they're almost taken to a certain route and then immediately after you know high school if they even finish it they're taken over do you think that could have happened with your dad and uh, i you know i i don't he wasn't spectacular in school i mean i i spoke with his brother here recently you know, about this. And I was like, well, what, what his brother says, my uncle, uncle Mike says, is that there was something about him. He, he had, he would build like a funny thing. He would build a boat. He decided he's going to build a boat, hand make it. Um, his dad was good with wood. I know he was good with wood. Um, he was good with dimensions and, and math. But as far as school, I mean, he was just an average kid. He wasn't, you know, 
he wasn't above uh I think he was just very rational and he could see he could see what he was I don't know how to explain that, but he could see it in his head what what he wanted to do. That's what Tesla used to do. He used to envision the finished product and then work around it. Well, and you know, and with the Libya thing, he was that was a that was a turning point in his life. Whatever happened there, whatever regime or whatever whoever forced him out of there, it was a violent my sister said it was violent too. It was, you know, a bunch of guys coming in with machine guns and they left with nothing. They lost all their money. They left all their belongings there. Pretty much his whole life was, was, you know, was in that country. And, and that, I don't know if that maybe had something to do with his, his determination not to let that happen again. I know when, you know, that was a big pivotal moment in his life and it, and it scared the crap out of him. I know that whatever the, whatever the details, my sister was too young to remember. So she's not a good source of information as far as what exactly happened, but whatever it was, it was bad. Was there a connection to Israel and that's why they were ejected from the country? That was, that was, that was the question. Um, my, I'd looked into it and, and, you know, my father said that When they went over there to build the facility, it was a, it was supposed to be a benign and, you know, benign thing. But it, what it ended up being, I guess, is that the Israelis and the British had some kind of agreement that they the Israelis were going to use that equipment remotely, I guess, to uh, spy on the Arabs. Of course. Of course. So what happened later? Well... His big break probably happened right at the, right at the, I don't know how far along in the Nike project he was, but at that point he had got a high enough security clearance and an old friend of his, we're going to call him, uh, we'll call him Bob. Um, Bob was, I thought, a relative of ours and Bob come to him one day and asked him if he wanted to go over the mountain range and work at a facility that was on the dry lake bed. And I believe that it was right around, we're probably 55, 56, 57, somewhere in that range, I would guess. Um, and uh, my father was pretty familiar with the test site, and uh, he was a little taken back by the fact that he was asking him to go work on the dry lake bed because there was nothing on the dry lake bed. You're talking about Groom Lake here? Yes, sir. And um, back then, I believe they called it the ranch or something like that, I think was the name. They had a bunch of different names for it, but I believe that's what it's called then. And um, he goes, well, he goes, uh, you can, um, we'll start the security review and we'll see what happens. So, Apparently over, I don't know the number of months, I'm, you know, he said it was the longest security review uh, that he ever had. There was all kinds of psychological things uh, that he went through. And I guess after that question and answer session and security brief and all that, he was um, taken out to what was now would be called Area 51. So the, the, name, the, the name Groom Lake, Dreamland, and Paradise Ranch. Those were the, yeah. the nicknames. And uh, he was there to work on some type of electrical systems to do with the boxcar or SR-71 project at that point. Um, and he, he worked... On and off on that project, uh, he would be bussed in. Um, they had some trailers out there that they could stay in back then. He said they had it a rattly. He always talked about the air conditioner in it. It said it rattled the whole damn top of the, the trailer that he was in. And um, he worked in and uh, completed that project, whatever whatever that was, in, in a sense, uh, his first trip out there. He did whatever he was supposed to do at that point. Did and he describe the facilities at all to you? It, yeah, he, he said it was just a big dust bowl. There was a dry lake bed. There was a bunch of trailers out there. Uh, these little, uh, I guess we would call them what, airstreams or whatever. There were to be a bunch of those. 
Um, there was a little dining hall there and, uh, he talked about an old redneck guy that was the security chief that was a, a really nice guy, but very thorough. And he didn't take anything from anybody. I mean, they, if they, you know, they, they went through this weird, uh, you know, they checked your ID constantly. It was constantly being, you know, checked and, and you were constantly under security scrutiny the whole time you were there. And any time that there would be any, um, thing that you weren't cleared for, you were ordered to go to the cantina. Is this before that area became more, when I say developed, developed as in perhaps they have more underground facilities? Is that before that happened? That would, yes, have to be. That would be in the early stages of, you know, shortly after, uh, you know, the shootdown of Gary Powers. And, and uh, you know, so it's it's uh, it would be probably late 50s, I would say early 50, mid 50s, 56, 57, 58, somewhere in there. And uh, it was very, you know, it wasn't a. It wasn't definitely the facility that they have now, that's for sure. Okay. And what came after? He, um, after the, after he left Lockheed, um, he went to, he went, started working on, uh, I believe it was the Titan one missile project. Um, I don't remember what the contractor, it might've been Bell Labs again. He's, he's worked for multiples back and forth. Um, and he started on the Titan, whatever series at the time it was, it might've been the Titan. I don't know. He's, he mentioned the Titan three C, but I don't know exactly. I think that was later on like 1958 or so that he, he, he started working with nuclear weapons. And, um, he was, he was in the, he wasn't in the missile part of it. It was in the facilities part of the missile, which would, I'm gathering, you know, would be the launch controller, uh, the, the silos and, you know, relay stations or whatever it is that they use for those missiles. And, um, he just absolutely loved that. That was, I think that was when he, you know, once he got cleared, had the clearance for that, he was he was on top of the world there. Um, he said it was it was it was really uplifting for him to, you know, as a child, dream of rockets and dream of, you know, space. And uh, little did he know uh, uh, a few a year or so later that he would be, uh, you know, following Kennedy's call to get a man on the moon. Did he ever mention, I don't mean to deviate for a moment, but I'm thinking of mm -hmm. Area 51. Did he ever mention Janet Airlines or Janet, Janet Airline? Yeah. No, they, they used a Constellation aircraft. It was a retired, I don't know the whole story with the aircraft. He used to even tell me what the name of it was, but I, I, I'm sorry, I just can't remember. But it was a Constellation. It was a four-propped plane that was the only time and the rest of the time he was bussed um to the facility for out of i don't know what the little town was or whatever but they would you know when they call you, you go to work so this must have come later uh, but when i mentioned janet airline that is the it's actually america's secret airline it flies area 51 employees from their origin to area 51 and back yeah i i have uh I never heard him mention Janet. Of course, like I said, that was that may have been before, um, before the you know they actually had those right, jets. Right. I'm not sure, but uh, I know he went out there another time. Um, I want to say it was probably in the 80s, and it was it was I want to say it was to use a piece of equipment, an old piece of equipment. I want to say it was something like that where he. And he, when he got back, um, he said the place had changed dramatically. I was going to ask you, how had it developed since he was there the last time? Yeah, it was major. The runway, um, the you know, the facilities, the hangars, all that stuff, satellite communications, all those things that weren't uh, weren't there. I know the Russians took a picture of it in the eighties, so it was probably that. You know, I I have that picture. I have it in my on my uh, wall in my shop. 
That's what made it public, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the first time. Um, that was the first time they tried. I think uh, GeoSat tried to take a picture of it, and they, which they did finally later. But um, the Russians were the only ones to be able to get a high resolution uh, picture, and I have that picture. That's that's on our wall in my shop. Does it say "I want to believe"? Yeah, absolutely. If you saw <laughs> the inside of my people, are there's more uh, extraterrestrials uh, hanging on my uh, my wall than you can imagine. So I'm curious. Well, we're talking about your your dance. This is before you're born, obviously. Yes, sir. Right. Yes. Okay. So so keep going because I want to be able to 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 match that time when you were born and what happened afterwards. But go ahead. I don't want to jump ahead. Oh, that's okay. So. Uh, he was working on the Titan project and I, and I will relive this with you a little bit later on. Once we kind of get through the, the, the chronological order here of his, of his services. But, um, after he, or during the time he was working on the Titan project, um, he was offered to go to NASA to work on Gemini, I believe is what it was. I can always forget. Now, is Gemini before Mercury? Geminis are after Mercury. Whichever the first, I think it was Mercury, um, was his first. And he was excited because he was ready um, to move. And, uh, you know, there wasn't much where he was at as far as uh, a life. You know, it was a go to work, go to work. It was kind of a grind. So... When they offered for him to come to Florida, um, he couldn't leave fast enough. <laughs> he was like on the next plane. I think he was out of there and uh, started started the space race. And um, so Mercury, Mercury is first, then Gemini, yes. then Apollo. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, f funny things happen. Um, he uh, shortly after that. I think right when they got back to Florida, he divorced my sister's mother that just she was not she was not happy, I guess, with the fact that of these changes, she would have stayed up in the desert. I think probably um, I think him making her or him deciding to to go off on another adventure was just too much for her. And something happened. Um, and. uh I know that when he started uh, his next post that that he was by himself or going through some type of marital problems and which ended his his uh, marriage. But uh, he uh, went right to work um, working on the uh, Mercury project. And uh, that's pretty much wherever all the all of the the guts of it start to happen and start to percolate. Um, he, he had a friend of his, uh, and, uh, they were, but they were been buddies for years and, uh, they both ended up going to work at the same, the same facility. And, um, he, it, I think that probably saved him a little bit because he had a family and dad didn't have a family. Uh, my mother, uh, my sister stayed with her mother and uh it was nice i think they just kind of took him in you know and uh they had kids and and uh which are still friends of mine today and um kind of you know took him under their wing i guess and gave him a a little bit of a family life besides the the grind at work that he was that they were doing and um he um he was really i think probably at that point he was probably depressed he was, you know, by yourself um, and he wanted to uh, I know there was a, a long period there where he didn't date or, or do anything. His work consumed him and he just would stay working all the time and until his friends would say, hey, man, you know, you got to get out and you got to start doing some stuff. Well, there was probably not a better place on the planet to be in the 60s than in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Oh, yeah. And um, my father and his buddy would frequent all of the, the local, uh, you know, all of the local bars and, and, and party it up and have a good time on the weekends. And 
do craziness. And then on, you know, Monday morning, they were back trying to put a man on the moon. But they did. They did. Uh, they did party. There's no doubt about it. Um, those guys, uh, they worked hard and they played harder. And that is about, I think, right during the first part of Mercury is when my father was in a bar called the Purple Porpoise, I believe it was called. And there's this square jarhead guy sitting at the end of the bar. And my dad goes down and says, holy crap, that's Gus Grissom. (laughs) And uh, him and Gus became buddies. And um, that kind of opened the world up for him as far as a social life, because these guys were doing, you know, all kinds of training and, you know, uh, he'd see him at work and stuff. But it was always, um, you know, his particular job that he was doing or what he was working on on the spacecraft may not be what they're doing. So, I mean, he did run into them a lot, but um, they hit it off pretty good. And uh, for those who don't know. I, I doubt it. I, our audience is very, very cognizant. I believe Gus Grissom is one of the Apollo one astronauts who died in that fatal fire. And we'll, we'll, we will definitely talk about that. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, he devoted all those guys, I, I guess, you know, I don't know if it was the post-war generation that made these great people, I guess, world war two, just, was, you know, how, what else could we possibly go through that was any worse? So when, you know, anything else is gravy, but these guys, um, and what they did and how they did it with the tools that they had and the technology they had was just remarkable. Um, and, uh, they pushed themselves to the limit. They pushed the equipment to the limit. They pushed, uh, you know, our first computers. I mean, there's just so much you can, you can pull from, what a bunch of guys did in Cocoa Beach. And a lot of these things were were totally unknown. They had no idea um, what they were getting into. And they were they, you know, guys like Gus, they would say, well, let's try it and see what happens. And that's just how they did it. That's just how they rolled. They they were, I want to say, I, you know, we call them space cowboys, or you call them outlaws of technology or whatever you want to call it. And my father was lucky enough to be right there smack in the middle of this incredible story that was unfolding in Cocoa Beach. Um, the next, I would, would, would say, you say, would you say NASA, including the astronauts and everybody else and your, your father and everybody else, would you say that everything there is so compartmentalized that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing? Would you agree with that? You know, I would say no. And I'll tell you why. Well, well, and we're, we're getting through the missions here a little bit, but you know, as, as the, as this thing developed and we started throwing these guys up on the tips of these rockets, it wasn't long before, as you know, strange stuff started happening. And all of these guys, there's not one of them that didn't, experience some kind of anomaly. They use the word, you know, NASA likes to use these, these funny words, uh, for things. And, you know, they, for the average guy like me and you, we don't know nothing because we're not there. You're not on the end of that Motorola radio, listening to the B channel, the medical channel. You don't know what they're talking about. We have no idea. So for the people that are involved, he always made it sound like if you were cleared, then you were in the know. It wasn't, there were some events, which I'll talk about, which were, um, which were, you know, uh, clamped on, but, you know, during the missions, I mean, it was, it was, it wasn't long before they figured out that, you know, there was somebody else besides us up there. I'm sure you're going to tell us, but I've heard from John Lear. You probably know who John Lear is. John Lear. Yes, sir. I, I have heard the name. So if I remember our conversation correctly, he told me that once they opened that capsule and they saw the charred bodies of, you know, the three astronauts, uh, Grissom, White, and Chaffee, that there was an additional chair with an additional astronaut. Have you heard that? Well, if you would like to uh, 
if you'd like to visit that for a minute, I got some things I could talk about with that. <laughs> Let's um, do it. We have time. So this, this gets into the crux, you know, you get, I would say, uh, all the way through the space program, there has always been two space programs. And my father decided, called it like, you know, there was a, they were twins. There was twin programs. There was the public program that you see with NASA. And then there's the air force program. Um, he always talked about how there was these two programs. And even if you read NASA's charter, you'll see that they are technically governed by the Department of Defense. And they are held accountable by the Department of Defense. But um, during the space program, he was there in the 80s for, for the shuttle, shuttle missions. And uh, right before the big massive layoffs that they had out there, and, you know, the Air Force has their own shuttle, has their own astronauts. Um, they can they can deny, you know, that all they want to. Um, but uh, there's always been duality in the space programs. There has to be. Um, the public, my father described it as, you know, if you tell something to somebody, a lot of times it gets blown out of proportion and it turns into chaos. And the average person, and even for me now, I'm, I'm the guy that lived with this man, and it's very difficult still, I'm 47 years old now, to get my head wrapped around what this old man was telling me all the time. You know, uh, the, and when I was younger, it wasn't, when I was younger, it wasn't, uh, wasn't something that I even, you know, I just assumed everybody knew that. How did that begin? Now, I presume you're already, well, no, because you, you're born in the, the early 70s, I was born right? in Yes, I was born in 1971. And if I'll go back a little bit to the, to the uh, Gemini and Merc, or Gemini and Apollo missions. Yeah. Um, by this time, my father had made, a, you know, a good name for himself. Um, he's run, won numerous awards uh, all throughout all of the projects. Um, and during the Apollo missions, there was an overwhelming presence during those missions. And we're just now, I mean, you can, you can just now see, you know, some of these guys that are, have come out and disclosed what they've seen. A lot of the guys that work in the tracking stations and, and, uh, that were there and saw it and heard it, um, they, you just can't blab that out to the American public and expect um, there to be good to come from it. People would panic. There would be, you know, questions of religion and the money system, and it would just it would turn into. Um, and I, I think that. What do you mean when you say I, you pre a large presence? Well, Gus, Gus Grissom, which we, you know, um, didn't have a lot of faith. Uh, a couple times in NASA, you can probably hear, you know, they were, they were fighting over the radio one time about, you know, um, not being able to communicate across the street, you know, right, and, right. and, um, these guys were trusting NASA to put them on a rocket and put them into earth's orbit or, you know, travel to the moon. And everybody has to have it together and the numbers have to be right. And, you know, and they'll say, it's always about the numbers, you know, as long as you get the numbers, right. We should be, you know, if the math is good, we're good. And they were, I don't know if my father described it as it wasn't a good feeling. His description of some of the incidents that happened during the Apollo missions, um, the things that happened to Neil Armstrong, whatever that was exactly. Didn't Grissom put a lemon, uh, a lemon on top of the capsule? And basically, he, he was just basically giving up. And that was the day before he died. Well, I know whatever happened to him when he stepped off that limb onto the ground, he wasn't by himself when he did it. And my father talked about that. Um, they It got so during the missions, and I believe even in Gemini, NASA, 
use terms like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Santa Claus was used a lot. Um, and they, they would, they would use these names as a, you know, uh, uh, a cover script. Yeah. A cover for what they were doing. And I mean, now we look back at it and I listen to the tapes and it's just like ridiculous that the average American couldn't listen to that and go, wait a minute. What, what is he talking about? Santa Claus, you know, um, and it was, and that's what my point earlier was. I was trying to get to is that it kind of came an open secret at that point because the cat was already out of the bag. The only thing that saved the Apollo missions was that twenty-seven second delay that they had. That's it. And um, you know, things were happening so much and so often during those missions. There was no way that you could feed a live television signal with with weird stuff going on. And it, he described it as just being kind of an open secret. You knew it was there. You didn't talk about it. Your boss told you not to talk about it. You didn't talk about it. Um, you know, you you go through these security screenings and these briefings and things. And, and, you know, these guys were patriots. They were fighter pilots. They were, you know, they were all walks of life. And uh, they, were, they weren't going to um, mention anything on purpose. But. A lot of the time, they couldn't help it. A lot of stuff was just out there. It just, it was, you know, there was nothing that they could do to pull it back. I believe there was an incident. Um, my dad mentioned Walter Cronkite one time, did something on the air and said something like, oh, what is that? Or something he was pointing. And um, he ended up in a lot of trouble because he was instructed during, before the, the interview, I guess, that he had, if anything was to, you know, if he saw anything or, you know, not to weigh, you know, get attention drawn to it and uh, something to that effect. I, I'm not I'm not absolutely sure, but I remember him talking about that. Um, and those guys just, you know, and, and once I was when he got sick and we really started to talk about all these things, I'm like, well. You know, didn't you, it had to be for me. I mean, once you know that they're, I mean, and I haven't seen a alien being, I haven't seen a UFO. I haven't seen anything. I have thought I've seen things, but when you know a hundred percent and you see it with your own eyes and you know what you're looking at, that's a whole different ball game from looking at it on a website or in a magazine. And I think that's, pretty much what happened to NASA, everybody was scared. Scared is really the only way you could describe it because, you know, it's there. They were, he said it was like them pretending that it's not happening. Just pretend it's not happening. And if you see something, don't say anything. You know, that was just how it was, but they were, they never tried to hide it with, with those guys. I don't believe what about the feats that came from, I'm just thinking Apollo 11, for starters. Uh, allegedly, there were two feats, one coming from Palo Alto, another one coming from somewhere in Australia. Yeah, the infamous B channel. Exactly. Channel. And they were not first generation. <laughs> I think they were second or third generation. They're, the cameras were pointing at a screen, and it was, pointed at, it was being broadcast in black and white when we had color television and the cameras were oh, on yeah. color. Why... Why this, I, I have a hard time understanding that if we have this technology, which right now fits in my Casio watch, yes, but back then it was a big deal and we had these color cameras. Why not show the world what was happening in the most modern technology we had and in, instead they went back to the 1950s? Yeah, that was the funny thing. They had, they had the technology. I mean, if what's amazing is, is people don't realize that all of the audio from all those missions was recorded on a digital DAT tape. You know, it was digital in its form. They had the technology. Um, I think a lot of it was probably to do with, you know, if you watch those, a lot of those uh, films, which are the ones that they didn't supposedly lose, um, you see that they're able to manipulate those cameras a lot easier 
as far as their their white out and they still do it. I mean, if <laughs> pull a NASA feed up, I mean, NASA's finally got an HD camera up there. But if you look at the previous missions, um, you know, a lot of them are in black and white. We've got thermal IR. We got all these technologies. We can see everything. You know, the tether incident was a good example of, of NASA dropping the ball and going, oh, what do we do now? Yeah, that's a big one with the space shuttle. You can't take that back. How are you going to take it back? It was, you know, and um, my my father laughed about that. He goes, man, they putting a thermal camera up there is like inviting the whole planet, you know, a whole whole solar system to the party. But I don't think that they I think for the. For whatever, you know, going back to to uh, Neil Armstrong, whatever happened to him, <clears throat> he wasn't the same. The guy that went up there and the guy that came back was not the same guy. But by the way, before you mentioned Neil Armstrong, mm-hmm. I was mentioning the when they opened the, the capsule and they saw the charred bodies. Oh, yes. It, it, I you, never you, you heard didn't mention. that. But it wouldn't surprise me because of the duality of the space programs. The Russians did it, too. The Russians killed a lot of astronauts. I mean, they, they've killed way more astronauts. They've had so many hit the ground uh, at high speed. It's crazy. And I'm sure we did, too. I'm sure there was a lot of Air Force guys. That's what the Air Force was there for, I think. You know, the, the duality of the, of, of the space programs. You know, um, he, my father talked about the big camera in the sky back in, I don't know, it was the 50s or whatever. His buddy worked on it. And I was like, he goes, yeah, they put a beer can up in space and they stuck three guys in it and they took pictures of the Russians for like a year. We never heard about that. Ever heard about that. Couple years ago, I happened to be cruising on Amazon or YouTube and there's this movie called Astro Spies. And it's the exact same, the exact same project to the T that my father described and how it worked and what they did. And it was just, you know, so. Over the years, as I've looked into all this stuff, you know, and I still do, there's still, you know, I still find little tidbits. And um, my my father's friend just passed away here last year. And um, unfortunately, I didn't get to speak with him uh, before that. But uh, I would have liked to ask him a bunch of questions, too, that, that have been bothering me over the years. And um but as far as the two space programs, that's always that's you know that's that just goes hand in hand. There's always two. Yeah, quick parenthesis. You're in mm-hmm. Central Florida, right? Yes, sir. Not too far away from Cape the Cape. Yes, sir. Do you ever have former NASA or retirees who go to your store and kind of tell you yes. stories? Yes, lots of them. It's funny. Um, when they when they come into the store, I usually get the question. They ask about the background, and I said, "Yes, my father worked at the facility for a little while, working on spy planes and some other compartmentalized projects." And I know, I know the lingo, I guess, or stuff that I say to them relaxes them. And then I'll give you an example: a Lockheed Martin guy, uh, Skunk Works guy, earlier last year come in, and we. We ended up, we started talking. It was lunchtime. We normally go to, we take a break between, you know, one and two. I think it was 6.30 and he was still in my shop. And I was, he didn't violate his security oath and he kind of weaved his way around things. And I would ask questions and he would, he, he was just a wealth of information um, to try to describe to me what this compartmentalization, I, I didn't. I think that's what really my father did a little bit of drinking later in his life. And these guys carry these burdens around with them. He described it as having a hundred ton weight on your back. It wasn't a pleasant compartmentalization is not pleasant for anybody that works in it. It's very difficult. It's very linear. You know, my father worked with a guy for years and never knew what he did. I mean, that's just, you know, but that's how they have to do it. If you don't have a need to know, you don't need to know. So then what happened? Let's go fast forward now to when you were born, 1971. You know, yeah, your father's still working the, uh, for, for a few companies. Oh, One of yeah, them, lots, yeah. Tell lots us. Lots of companies. So in the, I was born in 1971 and um, my mother and my father were, he was still at NASA at that time. Um, 
still working on the space program, still working on the Apollo program. And um, second marriage down, she couldn't she couldn't take the work hours. He's gone all the time. He was, uh, you know, there, he just wasn't he was gone all the time. And she couldn't uh, she couldn't deal with it either way. And my mother, uh, nine months of age, um, she left. So here my father is trying to get a man on the moon, and he's got a six-month-year-old little boy to have to raise. And um, he, uh, he flourished at, at what he did. He, he made it work. He, he, you know, I had some babysitters, and I had, uh, I had to go to, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of, uh, of uh, supervision and stuff at that age. I was always at a, you know, a nursery school or, you know, that was the norm for my life growing up as a kid. Um, my dad left, you know, if he had, uh, if he was working out at the Cape, we lived in Orlando at that point. Um, and he would leave at five in the morning and he'd be back at six at night. And it was, uh, you know, once I was of age, of course, um, it was, I was pretty much, uh, on my own at that, you know, on, uh, during those days to go to school and, and come home. And we were just kind of like bachelors in this, um, crazy house we had. It was, uh, by that time, uh, the computer technology had really started to get good. And every time that he would start some new process or project, there would be a new computer system that would come home. Um, and as a young kid, the greatest thing I think ever in the world was having computers in your house. Were they computers that were available, microcomputers that were available to the public yeah. or were they not? But before the public, you know, or, right. or, or different versions of Apple's, different versions of all oh, the old IBM, you know, the first X80s and all right. those, um, which I still have a lot of those. I've kept a lot of that equipment. Um, and, uh, so it was, it was pretty neat. And, uh, I would constantly as, as a, as a kid, um, I'll give you an example, like anytime that they would have like a launch out there, whether it would be the air force or, or, uh, NASA or, uh, you know, uh, defense department, whoever it would be, um, we always had access and, uh, you know, we got to sit in bunkers and watch big rockets take off and I eat beef jerky and drank warm Cokes. And it was the greatest thing ever. I mean, it really was. It was, uh, you know, I got to, to the point where I was there a lot. Um, and so, so good that I could actually stay there. Um, my favorite place out, uh, at Kennedy Space Center when I was a kid was they had a big data facility out there and, um, it had a robotic, data, re, uh, data retrieve storage unit, which basically is a big building with a robot in it. Well, on a track. And I absolutely at a young age loved to play with that thing. And they'd actually let me sit there and an engineer would come in and he'd have a file number and he would have, uh, you know, uh, set of information that he needed and a reference number. And we'd type that into a little, you know, look like a, probably something like a big phone pad or something to that effect, you know, big buttons on it. And that, that robot arm would zoom down the hallway and in a couple of minutes, bring you back a DAP tape and dump it out there so that he could retrieve his data. And those are the earliest memories I remember of, of those and the data rooms with the big magnetic, you know, uh, storage, uh, tape drives in them. Um, I just absolutely loved it. I was very lucky um, in any of the events or any, you know, they were just those group of guys just treated me like I was, you know, one of their own. And I, I pretty much had the run of the place, you know, uh, if I wanted to go, uh, if I wanted to go see airplanes, we would, they would, the air force guys, we'd load up and we would go South down the beach into the Canaveral seashore and over to the other side to, to the uh, Patrick air force base or the Cape, uh, the, uh, air force station, the Cape Canaveral air force station, uh, for the, you know, any of those things. And when the shuttle came, you know, I was there 
when they dropped the first shuttle and it was just it really was uh, an amazing you know and this is my father is doing this you know so as a kid you know uh, i grew up in a what's funny thing about my father he as much as he was smart in what he did he never seemed to care where he lived <laughs> he uh he wasn't a he he wasn't a man of money that's for sure he didn't money wasn't his happiness um doing stuff was his happiness radio uh, computers we we just our house if you went into our house it was more like a laboratory than it was uh a house i think we had a couch once um and it got in a way i think for some computer equipment so we did push that out into the street so there was never um when kids would the most of the time when I grew up in Orlando, I grew up in a downtown area. It was very depressed there, but the rent was cheap. And my father was frugal when it come to, um, you know, the places that he lived. And he wasn't going to spend a bunch of money on rent if he could, you know, secure the place good enough to go to work. And, you know, um, it was okay for him. Me as a kid, though, it was a little difficult considering uh, where I was living and what kind of environment I was in. But it, it all worked. You know, it, it, it did work. And, um, but I did, I was very lucky, um, to, uh, grow up around these guys and to see, you know, and to be experience it. It was like kids would, I'll give you an example when, you know, the, uh, my father, unfortunately during the challenger incident had brought our, uh, our, um, junior high school class out to the site when that occurred in, well, that that day of January of eighty yeah, six. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was crazy. Um, you know, and it. So there were there was there was rough times too. You know, there was layoffs. There were things that was uh, you know, um, after the, the space race was over with him, he uh, he was financially set for the first time in his life. Um, he had saved his money. Um, he had, of course, my mother was gone. And my father, you know, he did, he's not real, he wasn't real good with the ladies, let's say. He just, it just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't in the cards for him, I don't believe. His work and his mind just didn't, didn't, um, didn't not work. Compatible. He, yeah, yeah. He just, it started out good, but then, it, you know, once he took a job somewhere and he was going to leave the country or take off it. You know, get a phone call in the middle of the night. Hey, you got to come out to the side or you got to do this. And, you you know, it just was it just wasn't it wasn't wasn't good. So um, he uh, met a French woman. I won't mention her name because she wasn't the greatest person in the world. But um, she uh, she was financially set. He was financially set. And a little side story on her was that. uh she was from France, and during World War II, the particular town that she lived in was a gold town, and they made, I guess, this is the foundry, or where they made ingots, or whatever, the gold bars, and when they found out that the Nazis were coming, they buried a bunch of this gold in the town, and when she got older, she and her new husband went over there and started bringing all this gold back, so she had a bunch of money. Hold it right there, because I don't mean to interrupt you, but we have to divide both segments. And when we come back, we're going to get into this story. He also worked at Aramco. I believe that's an Arab-American company. Right? And that's, uh, if anybody wants to know, that's the Bin Laden (laughs) family. Martin Marietta, McDonnell Douglas. And also, we're going to talk about what he told you about UFOs over missile sites, UFOs during the space race, Strange things on the moon. Neil Armstrong and what happened to him on the moon. UFO crashing a Florida swamp. The OD security sweeps at your house. And his regrets of the things he worked on. All of this when we come back. And usually I tell people, our listeners, where to buy a book or go to a website. In this case, this is something different. But let's give some a plug to your store. Oh, okay, great. Uh, Area 51 Computers, we're located in downtown St. Cloud, uh, Florida. And you can find us on Facebook. And uh, 
for anybody out there that has a problem and 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 or just wants to talk about crazy stuff i do that too um it's not uncommon to find somebody standing in my shop talking about things so uh if uh you know you ever need my help we're here to help you folks don't go anywhere i'm here with pat shank a new edition of vox popula he's talking about his dad ray shank and everything he did a lot more when we come back this is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas, Vox Populi. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this very important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our archive material, go to the member section or subscribe at VeritasRadio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for great products, including pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and more. Thank you. <laughs>